Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show. The Product Startup, Episode 42. Stacy Marking talks about all-natural insecticides, grant-sponsored research, and taking a DIY approach to testing, designing, making, and bottling. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, where we talk about turning ideas into successful products step-by-step. Step. I'm Philip Velitza, and thanks for listening today. In the last episode, we spoke to Jay Demerit about designing one-of-a-kind stereos made from reclaimed wood from the forests of British Columbia. Make sure to check out episode 41 if you want to hear more about selecting the right electronic hardware and perfecting the manufacturing process. Before we get started today, I wanted to read a listener question. Fred wrote in, I'm a fellow product designer and electrical engineer, but somehow in the last 10 years of my work, I've been designing engineering for structural components in aerospace. I'm looking to start my own product development company and just launched a Kickstarter for one of my products. And he includes a link there for a reverse whiteboard idea. It's basically a whiteboard that flips around and it shows art on one side and a whiteboard on the other. I'm currently needing some help on determining the best way to price this product. Do you have any techniques or resources that can help? Parts are mostly machine components from 6061 aluminum alloy and some assembly of whiteboard is required. Fred, that's a really good question. I haven't written any pricing articles yet, but I would try this approach. Number one, determine your bottom-up pricing, and that includes all the costs that go into determining the final unit price of your product. For example, manufacturing costs, including quality assurance that you will get done on-site, spread among the entire order, packaging, shipping, and customs to get to your warehouse or your home, the cost of returns, and that can range, and typically it's anywhere between 2 and 7%, depending on the product, advertising per unit. So if you're going to be paying for display ads or pay-per-click ads, things like that from Google or Amazon, and any types of fulfillment fees like Amazon FBA, credit card fees that might be usually 3%, cost of sales per unit. Then determine your top-down pricing. So what's the range of pricing for the whiteboards that are of that size and quality and that might have similar features? What premium are customers willing to pay for the features that you give? So your final price will be somewhere between those two numbers. Keep in mind that you need to account for some profit, some operational costs like e-commerce hosting and e-sauce tools like email, warehouse storage fees, bills, utilities, that type of thing that are normally monthly costs that need to be absorbed by your business. In general, I have found that my landed cost, in other words, the cost to have the product in my hands, is about one-third to one-quarter of the final sales price. If you sell through a wholesaler or a distributor, then you should expect them to take at least 10 to 50%, and then the ratio will be a little bit worse than that. It might even go up to a fifth or a sixth if you have more players involved. So I hope this helps. Let's get started with the show. Hi, Stacey. Thanks again for joining us on the show today. Hi. I'm really glad to be here because it seems such an interesting idea for a set of, set of podcasts. 
one of the reasons that I wanted you to come on the show is because a lot of the stuff that you do is trending. It's in the news now. People are focused on products that are maybe organic or they're more connected to the earth. They're all natural and moving away from some of the synthetic products and insecticides and pesticides and things like that that people might be used to. So maybe you can mention a little bit why you started Lemongrass Trading Company in the first place. Yeah, I started it really, it's nothing to do with my whole background. Um, I started it because I was in India um, and had access, which is quite unusual, to rural India, to real village India in, south, in, in the southern parts where farmers are very poor, are suffering very badly from having to from debt because of the fertilizers and the um, pesticides that they're using. My husband was actually building a thousand different buildings for an agricultural firm there to make small amounts of seed and fertilizer and everything available to really rural farmers. And while he was there, I I started to look into the traditional ways um, that they had used for insecticides, pesticides, and fertilizers. And one of the things that I came across there was lemongrass, which grows wild and prolifically. And they, it's been used partly to keep insects off animals, partly to help the storage of foodstuffs once harvested, and as an insecticide in the house, as well as smelling divine. And so I, I just I just fell in love with lemongrass, really, um, there, there and then in these rural villages. At first, I knew it as a, as a, as most people probably do, as a culinary ingredient, and I'm very keen on cooking. And I thought if I import it, that I would actually try and make it as a kind of lemongrass oil or something like that for cooking. I'm still working on that, but I haven't managed to stabilize it. It's quite tricky. And of course, the regulations for any food things are huge. Right, absolutely. And in the meantime, I started working on it as an insecticide. Initially, the, one of the main problems here, especially in urban England, is moths. There's much more cashmere. People are warmer in the winter now with their cashmeres. Cashmere is much cheaper. And people have a real problem with clothes moths. And of course, when you try and spray against moths, it's usually in your bedroom or somewhere where you really want to breathe clean air. And so I started making this these natural insecticides initially for use in the house, although now it's extended to horticulture and could actually extend to agriculture, although I'm hardly a threat to Bayer or any of those people yet. It's interesting to see people go into an industry where there's already some serious competition. I mean, when you were starting this, you undoubtedly looked around in the market and went to the, you know, to the pharmacy, the drugstore or, you know, to the home goods stores and saw that there were other products on the market that were doing something similar and they might have not been all natural and they might have not been lemongrass, but they were still in the market taking up space and occupying uh, the buyer's minds. How did you feel about attacking that large of a market? In a way, I came at it a slightly different way. I mean, of course, I knew there were all these rivals. I had moss. We live in a house that was built in 1480. That's before America was, before they arrived in America. Um, and old houses store things like moths in the floorboards and behind cracks in the stonework and all that kind of thing. So I needed anti-moth stuff, but I couldn't bear the kind of acrid, toxic smell of it all. And so I started on the lemongrass and then I found other ingredients. And recently I've been working with one, which I'm, I won't mention just because it's, it's in a way, it's my kind of secret ingredient, but I've been working on different plant extracts that, that 
are aimed at the larvae and not at the adult insect. Because, of course, with clothes moths and with so many of the other things, it's the larvae that do the damage. Sure. No, that's really interesting. And nobody was really doing that. There are one or two other natural ones, but for one thing, they don't smell nearly so nice. And for another, I didn't find them so effective. So when you started doing this, I imagine that you started experimenting with techniques to extract some of the oils and creating sprays or testing the efficiency of things. How did you go about creating some of your early prototypes? I didn't work with the lemongrass itself because that would mean importing huge amounts because it has to grow in a tropical country and certainly mm -hmm. wouldn't survive in England. No, I import the essential oil. So it's already made into essential oil, which is done extensively in southern India. Um, and in fact, in Cochin, which is in a, a state called Kerala, which is known as God's own country, is, I mean, a rival God's own country to your own, which is very beautiful. And they do a lot of in essential oils like that. So they're very professional. And um, so I, having imported the essential oil, really just started research. I'm a great believer. I think for everybody, the most important thing to know in the world is that if you can read, you can do anything. No, I totally agree with that. I tell people all the time, the day that I stop learning is the day that I die. You know, I, I, I really enjoy exploring the world and uh, talking to people like yourself um, just yes. energizes me. So that's one of the reasons that you're on the podcast is um, right. um, because it's exciting to talk to people that do this. So as you were importing some of this stuff, you mentioned that normally there's some constraints with importing food products. Were there any such constraints with essential oils yet? No, actually, the actual ingredients are permitted and allowed. It's when you start to have a product that all the regulations kick in. It's interesting. I mean, you can't use the word insecticide, for instance. Under European rigs, which, of course, we're about to maybe leave, you have to have things tested, which can cost up to a million euros. And it actually puts innovation and experiment out of the reach of smaller people. But you do learn, I'm sorry to say this, but you learn what I call weasel words. You just learn which words are okay. And that's interesting that you bring that up. I was just going to say that in the U.S. we have something similar where the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, yes. gets involved with a lot of testing. It can cost easily $25,000 to get lab testing done of your products. The way that people get around that is, like you mentioned, labeling certain things as supplements instead of drugs. They're not under the same type of scrutiny, at least when it comes to health products, as well as they look at some of the raw materials and submit the MSDS as the material safety data sheets. Yes. Um, yes. to whoever is going to be selling the product to make them feel that, hey, even though this is a new product that's on the market, all of the core active ingredients are made with ingredients that have already been tested before and they've been proven safe. That's true here. But actually what I found here was last year I had a Euro grant under a European program for innovation in agriculture, which was tremendously helpful because it gave me quite a lot of gravitas. And I worked at the University of Bristol, which has a fantastic parasitology department. Um, and they tested different different things, different mixtures um, on different larvae, adult insects and eggs and that kind of thing for me properly, you know. Um, but and that was great. And I had the grant specifically for innovation. But once you've innovated, the, once you've tested these innovations, they still won't allow you to use ingredients that they have never given the okay for mm. before. Now, in a way, that's fair, except that, as I said, it's unbelievably expensive to get each individual ingredient tested so that in a funny way, you're left stymied. 
Now, I've got all these, these, these sort of credentials paid for by Europe, you know, in terms of research and everything, but it's very, very difficult to implement without actually using these these other words. And um, I mean, it's, it's quite interesting. Words like insecticide, if you use that, you get a million regulations down in your head. If you call it a repellent, the same thing. But if you call it a deterrent, that's okay. Right. So <laughs> That's fascinating. Uh, we've started rather early into this particular bit of the topic. I hope that's not too early before we, there's enough background. But anybody else who's in, I don't know, in cosmetics, in food or anything else, just do it. <laughs> you know, at first I was really intimidated by all this stuff. And then somebody said to me, oh, just do it. And so you do it and then you find which words are acceptable and which words consumers will also understand. And you're kind of on your way. Yeah. I don't mean it's cheating and dangerous. I mean that it's the only way to innovate. You're just following the trends in the market. There's other products that are doing the same thing. You're just yes. kind of following in their footsteps. Yes. So you mentioned that you were learning about a lot of this stuff and just kind of doing it. You went out there and just started. What were some of the steps that you took to make sure that people would even buy what you were selling? Were you doing this in parallel with talking to potential customers? Do you know, I'm not quite, I don't think I was really. I know that that's what you're supposed to do and do market research <laughs> said to be very, but I just knew how urgent it was. I knew how everybody has a moth problem in England, you know, in the winter. I mean, one of the troubles about the moth problem is as most insect ones, it's quite seasonal, you know, so that this time of year, it's rather low because the people aren't seeing the moth so much, but they will by April, they'll be coming out again. We've got a huge mosquito problem here and that only surfaces in the spring, summer, fall. Yes. So yes. that might be something to consider with your line is if you expand to other markets, even though it could be seasonal, it really just depends on the geography. Well, yes, which, which hemisphere you're in. Right. So you could it. Yes, no, that's true. That's true. And I do get, funnily enough, I have quite a lot of clients from Australia. I'm not sure why, because it's quite expensive to send to Australia. But uh... So as you've started to perfect your product, have you run into any hiccups or things that you thought, man, I wish I would have known this six months ago? Well, yes, because at the moment I still mix it all and bottle it all myself, although I have machinery to do that. Um, it's just still all done on site. We do it here. And if it gets any bigger, I'm going to have to find external manufacturers and that kind of thing. But what I did do is I invented some, I think, really good products, but which are incredibly labor intensive. And I've had to drop them simply because it just took too many stages, too much ingenuity to get it all ready to go. That's something that we don't talk about at all on the show is products that never make it to market because uh, you, you sit down and you realize that it might not be economical to do so. And that's really kind of sad because you put so much effort into it. And at least product creators like myself, there's a bit of emotion attached to it, or at least for me, maybe it's too much so sometimes to where you're really connected with what you're making and you really want it to succeed. And then you come to the end of the line and you realize, you know what, this isn't going to work. But as you said, at the end of the day, if you don't uh, take that as data and if you don't take it with a positive light to say, hey, you know what, that was a trial and it gave me some good feedback, but now I know what to look out for in the future. If you don't do any of those things, you'll never make progress. Do you agree with that? 
Yes, absolutely. Yes, because um, I mean, I'll just give an example, and if anybody else could make it, they're, they're happy to. But you know, little beer mats that you get in pubs, or I, I imagine you do in America as well. You know, you get cheap kind of cardboardy things, right. but it's very absorbent. And I thought if you had those infused with lemongrass, um, they would be really useful because, you know, when you squirt a, um, anti moth spray or something around, it's quite volatile and it disappears quite quickly. But if you had these little mats, you could, um, you know, it would last longer in, in a closet or in a, on a shelf in a bedroom or something. Um, and I, I, it took a tremendous amount of research because lemongrass is a very powerful stuff. And if you were using it neat, A, you had to find printing inks that would, would survive having lemongrass on the mat and then print the mat. Then I realized that the stuff, you had to have something underneath to stop it kind of marking the wood or the paintwork or whatever you were putting it in. And I found some very good polystyrene rings that I put underneath, but they all melted after about three months. Mm. They kind of collapsed under the power of the lemongrass. And I had to keep them separate from each other. And so you had to find a different kind of protective disc to go between each thing. And then they were in a really cute tin, which I loved, and I sold them at three at a time. And they still, I still have lots of them because they, and they really work. But, you know, by the time I'd done all that sticking together and finding the materials and sourcing the different things and putting them in the tins and, you know, <laughs> getting the labels printed with proper ink, you know, it would have been too expensive to sell them. So what do you do with the product now? You said you've got it sitting on a shelf. Well, funnily enough, um, I've um, recently started giving them away to beekeepers because a friend of mine who's a very, very keen bee beekeeper found that she thought that it she just tried it rather bravely, I think, really, with her bees, because, of course, there is a lot of problem, as you know, with bees uh, at the moment. But she found in her hives, she was very anxious they weren't going to get a particular mite that's very dangerous to bees. And she put the lemongrass in, and the mite has never, in, it's never come. So at the moment, I'm just sort of giving them away to beekeepers to put in their hives to see whether it does stop that kind of those particular mites. It should do because it's, you know, most insects absolutely hate the smell of lemongrass. No, that's interesting. You have to make sure that it doesn't affect the bees. Exactly. That's the other thing. But but my friend doesn't think it does. She's quite happy with the state of her bees being mitless, but apparently, because I think it can disorient them. It's it's not so much that it does them harm as it disorients them and therefore they go foraging in the wrong directions or can't come back or that right. sort of thing. Well, it's good that you're testing this now, and you might have a second product on your hands. <laughs> yes, I know. Yes, the beekeeper's friend. <laughs> I've got a product that I sell on Amazon, and it's just too costly to rework the return. So I'll get maybe 5% returns because it's a product that has a certain type of fit. You know, It has a specific size and color. And yeah. so some people will return the product, and I have to rework the, the packaging and everything to get it to sellable <laughs> condition. And by the time I do that, the cost is just too high to resell again and make a profit. So what I've done with that excess product is use it, like you said, as almost a calling card where mm -hmm. I will drop it to local businesses after I rework it and say, here you go. This product is essentially free for you. Do whatever you want for it. You can give it away to customers or you can sell it or you use it as marketing for yourself. And it's really helped me kind of start that conversation with new vendors. Yes, no, that that's true. And it's almost by chance that I've done that with bees. But now you say that, I think I could do that with those discs. 
in, you know, quite often just to send people as a, as a sample and say, you know, the press, for instance, you know, you could just send it out with a little press release. Absolutely. Thanks. Yes, that's really good. Yeah, I wonder if you could make it make it into a, a a postcard of some kind. I don't know if it would survive the mail, but I've definitely seen some inventive things sent in mail as yes. as samples that then you could pin on a board or uh, have sitting around on a coffee table or something. Yes, yes, no, that be that be good. Um, the other thing I have tried. I mean, sometimes I I, I go to fairs, and mostly I sell online. Um, but I I do go to fairs. I love going to fairs actually because you meet the customers and you find out what they really think and want. Um, and um, and sometimes I put I, I I put them in the loo or something like that. You know, in the yeah. public loos. So people say, oh, yeah, I saw that in the loop. <laughs> it smelled nice because it does, as you know. It's your way of counteracting all the graffiti. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, do good in the world. So as, as you've moved through this process, uh, have you felt that you had like some sort of a unique skill set or superpower that made you able to make some progress on this compared to some other people? <laughs> no, no, superpower I don't have. But um, because, and I have to say, I mean, I, I am quite old. And I've, I started all this, you know, after I'd retired from my main work and everything. Um, so that, uh, and, and you are, and you're slower when you're older, no question. But if it's any comfort to anybody who's listening to this, you know, just, just do it, as I said before. I'm rather annoyed that Nike thought of that, that um, you know, sort of <laughs> because I, it's always been my method, my method and my belief in life. And um, I, I would have patented it if they hadn't. If you go to lemongrasstrading.com and go to your about page, people can yes. see you working in your, I imagine that's your house. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's one one wing of the house actually. It this is it is the oldest part of the house, which was um, built by monks in 1480. It's amazing shot. That's a great shot. Good. That's that's partly why I sent that one. Partly <laughs> because you can't see me so well. <laughs> partly because it is such an amazing room to work in, and it's quite interesting because I I feel the presence of these monks. You know, I think they're quite they, they they're quite beneficial, and they look. They, I'm sure they brewed their own mead and beer and stuff here. <laughs> they, like, they like the fact that this is still all natural. No, that's great. That must be a really inspiring environment <laughs> to work. As you've gone through this process and you've created your product and you started selling it to people step by step, uh, imagine you had to come up with some of your own marketing and sales tactics. Um, can you share a little bit about uh, your strategy to to get your product out there in the world? Yes. Um, I... I mean, I just think you just have to keep on at it. The two things that have had the biggest effect on, on my sales ever was one, um, they, we have a Sunday paper called The Observer in England, and they have a page about eco products. And somehow or other, they got onto me, and I was what they called the green crush of the week. And they just featured it. They featured what I was, do, what I was doing. And... The effect was quite extraordinary. I mean, just hundreds of orders from the next day onwards. Right. But, of course, that quickly dries up again. And that's that's a thing to warn other people of, that even if you get a wonderful bit of, of, of publicity and you get this tremendous surge, it does die out again. And I wasn't expecting that. I just thought, oh, that's it. I've done, it's done. And then about a year later, the fashion editor of the Times, the London Times, 
um, wrote a whole column about it, saying that lemongrass trading was her method of moth destruction, you know. And um, that there again, I got hung. I still get customers from that. Well, and I imagine a part of the reason that you got picked up was because that you're locally produced. So I would say the takeaway there is for anybody that's creating their own product to reach out to local PR and local organizations that need content and pitch them with your idea. Did you have to pitch the editor of either? Um, yes, I Well, yes, the second one, the Times, I did pitch, actually. And um, then she said, well, I have to... I'll have to test it, you know, because I got so I sent her one of everything, and then I didn't hear for oh, I think it was four or five months until she wrote the column. So she really had tested it out and found that it worked, and so that made her column even more valuable because she said, "Look, you know, this works." No, that's great. No, really great advice. I mean, it doesn't cost very much to send the products out in England. There's a thing called journal request, or one word, whereby every day somebody sends you what journalists are requesting. Now, it's not very often that they're requesting something that my product fits into, but I read it every day just to make sure that, you know, and if there is something about, oh, I don't know, you know, car pollution or something, I'll say, wow, yeah, listen, this isn't quite what you're after, but I've got this natural car spray, which um, smells divine and doesn't poison you. You know, and then from there, there'll be mentions and that kind of thing, too. But it's hard work. You have to do it kind of every day. And I sometimes get fed up with it. I'm sure you do, too. I was just going to mention that we've got something similar. It's called Haro, uh, Help a Reporter Out. And oh, yes. I think there's something similar in Australia that really covers the whole world. And it's called Source Bottle. I, I try to use all three. And actually, you and I met through Twitter because we did a journalist request, I think. Do you know, I'd forgotten that. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> how, yes. So there's yeah. certainly a lot of ways to make contact with people. I find Haro to be very noisy. There's just so many submissions going out, it's hard to keep mm -hmm. up with it all. And like you said, for someone that's pitching a product, I'll pitch the product startup to get on other shows as well. And it's just mm -hmm. a lot of work. It, it takes me 30 minutes maybe or, or 20 minutes to create a nice personal pitch because I want it to be specific yeah. to who I'm pitching. And if you have to pitch 10 and, and out of those, you might get two or three responses. And then maybe one of those actually materializes. The uh, yes. the return is a little bit difficult. <laughs> yes, you see why people employ PRs. <laughs> no, ab absolutely. Yeah. Well, one day w w when I get one big day. enough. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you how you make your sales. Are all your sales local or do you sell online as well? No, I mean, they're online and I get quite a lot. I get quite a lot from abroad, but when I have to tell them the, the um, postal charges, you know, that very often stops it because it's, or there are, it's difficult to send the stuff to America, actually, because your customs people hold it up for days. And I get angry emails saying, it's never come, it's never come. And then I say, look, hold on, hold on. I'm afraid it's out of my hands. You know, it's it's with your customers people. And then I get lovely emails back from people in California saying, it's come at last, thank you. you know. But online, I do find that, you know, I mean, you have no idea how many people are going to reply. But mainly, I have, in England, um, my main places are London, 
Edinburgh, because there are a lot of old buildings, Oxford, because there are a lot of old buildings, or these are people who read the Times and the Observer. I'm not quite sure which, but it's you can definitely place who's got a moth problem. And sometimes I then try and go to the local press in that town and say, you know, Lemongrass Trading says the most customers they've ever had are coming from, you know, from right. Oxford. You know, and so you brought up a couple things here. You mentioned the uh, the issues with exporting. I imagine if you were able to set up a wholesale partner or a distributor of some kind in the U.S. I'd love to do that. Yeah, then you could just sip an entire pallet of this stuff and then have them resell it. So if there's anybody listening that, yes. <laughs> that wants yes. to reach out to you. Uh, and who particularly, I mean, because I think in the, in the States, more thing, the, the, that whole natural market has grown so, so fast in the States, hasn't it? People really don't want to be breathing these toxic fumes. Yeah, no, agree with that, certainly. And it's the it's good for you to catch on that trend because it's going to certainly help out with some of your marketing that you've got going on. The moth is the main seller, but I think that's because it's England and, and people have to wear cashmere all the time to keep warm. But there's also the car sprays are going very well because there's so much talk about air pollution at the moment and so much so much toxic fumes going on in cars that at least if you've got the lemon cross, you're not adding to it um, while you sit in the in the and it's quite and in um, it's quite stimulating actually. It, it, in aromatherapy, which I don't do, um, they use lemongrass for uplifting the spirits, and I think it does that too. So there's room freshness. But in amongst the insects, I just wanted to mention one thing. I've have invented something which nobody else has done so far, which is a wasp spray out of, made out of all edible ingredients. Hmm. So that because if you have a barbecue or picnic or whatever, and you're being played either by midges, there's a midge spray as well, or wasps, you don't want those toxic fumes to be going all over your food right. and, and drink. And so I've invented this edible wasp spray, and I feel that that should have a future. Well, no, that's great. And I can imagine the application for that too. Certainly I've, I've, uh, you know, especially with the sprays that have like a 25 foot reach, it, it gets, yes. it gets on things that you didn't originally intend for to spray. <laughs> No, exactly. Actually, I think the lemongrass improves salads. <laughs> there you go. New salad dressing. Yeah. Stacy, where can people go to find Lemongrass Trading Company and buy some of your products? www.lemongrasstrading.com Are you in any stores in the UK? No. Um, at the moment, I'm not, actually. Um, somebody has taken over my sales in England, does it on eBay. Now, which has been quite a relief to me because then I can go on developing my products while the eBay people actually handle the parcels and, and packages. Um, but at the moment, not in a store. Um, I haven't really tried to get into stores, actually. Um, but I think that's probably the next move. Well, what I'd like to do is maybe have you on within a year and just to do a quick update. And hopefully by then you can talk about some, some interesting things that you've done. Yes. Oh, that'd be lovely. Thank you so much. And it's been such a pleasure talking. Stacey, thanks again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And goodbye to you all. I hope that you got some great takeaways from Stacey. Here are my top three. Number one, understand regulations in your industry. Labeling her products as a repellent instead of an insecticide helped Stacey avoid prohibitively expensive regulatory testing. There's a double-edged sword here as you want customers to feel that the product is safe and effective. So I would opt for third-party testing to prove that your products will do what they claim they do safely. 
You can get this done for usually much less than a typical certification and still post the lab results on your site or include them in your inserts. Number two, design with product cost in mind. Stacy said that in hindsight, some of her products like the coasters didn't work out because of the complexity and cost of manufacture. Many companies I've worked for have a target manufacturing cost that they set before design even starts. Make sure to include all the costs from quality assurance to labeling, assembly, packaging, and shipping. 3. Repurpose failed products. Stacy was able to find a new home for the coasters with beekeepers. Just because you may not be able to sell a product, that doesn't make the whole process moot. What can you do to strip it down to make it attractive to some other audience or market? Can you use pieces of it in your marketing? If you'd like to get these takeaways in your inbox every week, just go to theproductstartup.com, scroll to the footer of any page, and sign up to the weekly wrap-up. And now here's a 30-second ad spot from a longtime product startup listener who's also launching a product with his girlfriend. Hi, Product Startup listeners. Looking for the next fun baking idea or craft? Want to support a fellow Product Startup listener? Head over to charliecat.rocks and check out the unique silicon baking mold I'm developing. The mold is perfect for creating cat-shaped treats for any animal lover in your life. I'm currently in the validation phase, so head over to charliecat.rocks and check it out. If you think it's a good idea, let me know by hitting the free pre-order button. That's charliecat.rocks, C-H-A-R-L-I-E-C-A-T dot R-O-C-K-S. Head over and pre-order today. Thanks. Thanks, Johnny, for submitting that clip, and good luck to you, and I hope that you get some good feedback from the product startup audience. So if you want to pitch your product on the show just like Johnny... Leave me feedback or questions at 681-321-1115. Join me next week as I speak with Chris Mitchell from MFG.com about soliciting quotes from manufacturers and the results of their survey entitled, How Will President Trump's Proposed Trade Policies Affect U.S. Manufacturing? Now, in case you think I've jumped the shark and I'm going into clickbait land here for the next episode, I'm not. The survey that MFG.com conducted is actually nonpartisan. It's just about people's perception, what they think the future will bring regarding U.S. manufacturing. And as we all know, regulatory issues, trade policies have a monster effect on our businesses. And it's one of the things that we can't control. So it's an interesting talk. Don't miss it. Tune in next week to hear that episode. Thanks again for joining me today. And I will see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Mako Design and Invent, the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Mako Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.